A few weeks ago, I spoke with Soumya Rajan of Waterfield Advisors. And if you've listened to it, you'll remember that we discussed what it was like to bet your entire future on an idea no one had tried before in India. In Soumya's case, that idea was a business model around wealth management. You might remember Soumya saying it really wasn't easy. Her peers had doubts. Her clients had doubts. Her family had doubts. She had doubts. But she dug her heels in. 12 years on, Waterfield Advisors is now India's largest multifamily office and wealth advisory, managing over 40,000 crores for its clients. We covered a lot of ground around Waterfield's early years. And then we took a break. We stepped outside, had a coffee, looked around the studio's offices, and then came back in to record again. And slowly, the next hour of our conversation became about looking ahead. Soumya detailed her vision to me. Waterfield is planning to expand to Dubai this year and perhaps even more international offices after that. When I think about, you know, larger organizations like a UBS or a JP Morgan, uh, which have built these uh, huge global outfits in wealth management, I ask myself the question is why can't it be a firm out of India that ultimately can do the same? J.P. Morgan traces its history nearly 150 years back. So, naturally, I asked Soumya, how do you make sure you're building a company that's going to be around for 10 years, 20 years, or even 50 years? How do you build a truly defensible and lasting moat for your company? Her answer was very interesting. It will be what we first started out with, which is uh, not really manufacturing our own products and basically being an advisor. She explained, Waterfield would never go into distribution, which is where the money is. It would always be an advisory. Again, Soumya has a big bet. She believes that Waterfield needs to give up growth and scale in the short term in order to succeed in the long term. And in this episode, she explains why this will work. One of the things that came up in our research, something that you said, um, was in your early entrepreneurship days, you were almost apologetic and it took you some time before entrepreneurship liberated you from the need to be associated with a role. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds very interesting, right? Apologetic and the need to be liberated from a role. What did you mean? Um, so when I looked at... Um my time in Standard Chartered, it was always about um, a designation and a company. So when you introduced yourself, even at a social event um, or a dinner or any social gathering, you would always kind of say, well, I am so-and-so. And the inevitable question is, what are you doing? And you'd say, I am head of the private bank at Standard Chartered. And you began to think of yourself and your identity very much linked to the role. And then when I left Standard Chartered and I started Waterfield, um, 
I remember going to several social gatherings at that point. I'd left Standard Chartered. And every time somebody would ask me, so what are you doing? And I would have to say, well, I've just founded this company. It's called Waterfield Advisors. I would always add, um, I was the head of the private bank of Standard Chartered, almost like of the private bank, almost to kind of establish myself in their eyes. Um, and it took me a long time to get out of that. So it was almost when I used, when you use the word apologetic, or I've used the word apologetic is because I was feeling that I needed to apologize for myself for having done the unthinkable of, you know, being at the peak of my corporate career to give it all up to move into entrepreneurship. So I felt I had to justify myself in to some in, to someone else. I've learned, of course, over the years that it's that's completely irrelevant. But at that time, um, I still felt a bit of that. And I don't know whether it's because of just social conditioning. Um, but when you become an entrepreneur, the second part of your question on your liberating yourself from the role, um, that's exactly what happened. I was able to see myself for who I am and my strengths, my weaknesses, and to say, what is I, what, what am I going to build based on who I am as a person and my values and the ideals that I have, not linked to my previous employer. And I think that was a huge mental change and shift that I did. And perhaps it's a little unique in my situation because of the conditioning for so many years of being in the corporate sector. Uh, it was 17 uh, years in the corporate sector and then stepping out to be an entrepreneur. Not really, Swami. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'll take you back to something that you said earlier as well. You said while you were at Standard Chartered, you know, the world was Standard Chartered and like, you know, the org chart, the people that you're familiar with. I mean, my theory is that when we are in large, well-known organizations, their brand and their ecosystem is so strong and powerful that it kind of suppresses our need to develop our own identities because you ride on those you go to a meeting like you rightly said yeah. you know the brand opens doors Correct. when somebody asks you what do you do and like you know typically if, i mean in most meetings people ask where do you work they don't ask you who are you or what do you do right so okay. when you take that away like you rightly said that's when your identity as an entrepreneur flourish so Absolutely. i think a lot of us have gone through that in the early years. A lot of us, me included, have felt apologetic because you're, I don't know why, but you are a kind of apologetic, right? Yeah, I'm doing this and then it's this. And then when you sense the, you know, recognition not coming from the other person of what it is, then you say, I used to do this earlier, right? Because Absolutely. you're trying to do that. Absolutely. Um, still sticking with entrepreneurship, you said that, it was hard in the early days to be taken seriously as a woman entrepreneur. Where does that come from? And I mean, how do we change it? Um, so when I say it was uh, difficult to be taken seriously as a woman entrepreneur, um, I really meant it in the context, Rohan, of... Um, of not just building a business which was a mom-and-pop sh shop. 
or the equivalent of a woman being an entrepreneur tends to sometimes um, the uh, the the significance of it is more more as a solopreneur or somebody who's mm, just a small business a small hobby business, business a hobby business it's not something serious or lasting. Is, or lasting and i think when i said it was it was i was not being taken seriously it was because i sometimes felt that they thought or whoever i met or i spoke to oh this is just another hobby you know she just wants to just do something to um fill her time so the fact that the intent was to actually build a business which was a big business and a global business was something that i always imagined for myself when i started waterfield in fact one of the reasons i even called it waterfield and gave it i remember somebody asked me why are you not giving it an indian name and i said well you know i really have aspirations for this to be a global brand so i didn't want an indian name which may which i thought uh, people may find difficult to pronounce uh, later so i said let's make sure that it was something that it could be a more widely uh, widely held um, just a widely accepted name but i just felt at that time that people thought it was a hobby and whereas my my desire the ambition was to build something which was much much bigger have there been instances where that's worked to your advantage where this has allowed you to kind of stay under the radar and not be seen as a serious long term rival because people think that this is just a short term business that somia is doing and like you know we don't have to take it as seriously uh perhaps in the early stages i think uh, for a lot of uh, my competitors uh they would have felt that oh she's just building another wealth management company she's not going to get very far indians are not going to pay fees uh it will have its own mortality sooner than later i certainly don't think so now i think they're much more watchful wary of what we're building and more than anything else i think they recognize the fact that i have stayed true to the belief of what i think is correct and right for the client and they do uh, recognize that we pioneered uh, a very new business uh, in the country what are some of the stock responses that your colleagues might hear from you if they come to you with a problem that you feel that they need to be fixing um so in the early days i would try and help them problem solve um partly because of just the way i am in terms of not letting go so it would always be about okay how can we fix this and then talk through the th- talk through the process of how do you fix this more recently it's been about well if this is a problem then can this problem be solved amongst your peer group does it need to come to me and if you can solve it within the peer group then do that so it's about pushing back a little um so today i think most of them realize that they really can't come to me unless it's something which is you know definitely something that i need to take a, a decision on or intervene in so but it's all about the process of letting go how many people report to you what's your span of control 
I have a very large span of control right now. Uh, it's close to about 14, which is... Uh, which is large. Our 120, 14 is large. Which is absolutely crazy. Um, it's also because many of the sales, um, the relationship managers report into me directly. Uh, and that uh, that works and it doesn't work. Because again, part of it, it works because advisory is new. And therefore, even to know how to pitch and how to uh, work with the client is something that I feel that if I can give these uh, individuals an insight of how to do that relationship management well, they in turn can take it down right. to their So teams. it's a transitionary. It's a transition. But I think I, I would I, I would think that not more than five is really the ideal number. What is the one thing all of your direct reports will agree about you? Um, apart from the perfectionist, I think they will also say that uh, positive, positive mindset. And um, they would also say that um, she has her heart in the right place. What does that mean? Um, I would never want to do something that... Um, may hurt another individual or it's not it's not acting at any cost uh it has to be an action that keeps in mind the other person as well it's almost like and that actually becomes difficult as a leader because the thing is that you may have to take decisions which are not always easy um, but for me to get to that point of taking those very hard decisions means I have to go through a lot mentally to get there. Uh, but I would say that whether it's the purpose of the business or it's the purpose of how I engage with others, I always think about the other person. Um, I don't know whether that's also because I've always, I am a twin. Uh, all my life it's about sharing all my life, it's not been about one. It's always been about we and it's about the collective. And therefore, for me, the collective is very important. It is how does does everybody win? Is it is it a win-win for all? It shouldn't be a win-lose. That for me, it just jars in my, my, my mind. You come across as someone who's very deliberate, um, heart in the right place, um, soft-spoken, what does being frustrated and angry look like for you, for your colleagues? Uh, I rarely, I don't think I've ever kind of uh, raised lost my voice or lost my temper with anybody. Uh, so much so that if I did, I think they'd know that there's a problem. Uh, it's just the way I am. I just feel that very little is achieved through anger. I feel that uh, better outcomes come when you can actually communicate better with the other individual. So for me, communication is high on the ways to diffuse situations. Uh, and I encourage that. Uh, where Can you have open, open adult conversations for anything that's on anybody's mind? When was the last time that you were truly down and... How did you motivate yourself through those days? 
I think when I was truly down was really when I started Waterfield because I was just quite confused. Was I doing the right thing? Because particularly after the corporate sector job, the easiest thing would have been to go into another organization at a leadership level and to build my career at that point. To have stepped out of that entire I won't, uh, I should call it rat race, and to really try and find a new path, um, I would often question myself that did I do the right thing? Um, and yeah, did so I do the right What was your motivation thing? during that? What kept you going during those times? Um, the fact that I convinced myself that I was doing the right thing and that I was doing something which would be meaningful. I was doing... I was creating a business model that didn't exist before and it would be for the benefit of uh, our clients at the end of the day and potentially as an equity holder in the company, hopefully someday it will create some wealth for me as well. So it was a bunch of things that was just that I really believe very strongly in the business model and I know that it will succeed. I have to be patient. I have to make sure that I get the right people as part of my journey. I need to be able to spend the time to articulate my vision because I think that's the other thing that founders need to do in the early stages because you've just got an idea. You just have a, I just had an Excel spreadsheet and I was doing this and saying, okay, this is how we will grow. This is how we will invest. But, um, to be able to communicate that vision and to say, this is the big picture. This is what we can become. This is what we all need to do together. Those are the things that uh, kind of kept me going. That it was almost, it's like striving for making sure that you wouldn't fail. And I don't know if how, how better to explain that. Or that... No, it's... Sometimes survival itself. It's survival, exactly. It's survival. Is, is, that, is a chip on the shoulder. And, and maybe, I don't know whether it, and I think also, uh, I don't know if ego is the right word, uh, but the fact that I didn't want to let myself down, that I've taken this decision to become an entrepreneur and it's not going to work out. So, in some ways, it's like you will work really hard to achieve what you have to. Uh, and maybe that was a lot of pressure I put on my on myself. Not that anybody externally put it on me, because everyone would say it was, be happy at the end of the day. Uh, but for me, it was, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it and that I had it in me to to have left Standard Chartered and to have embarked on something that I truly believe in and to make that dream a reality. That's, for me, it was a lot of self-belief that come what may, no matter all the naysayers, doesn't matter who's saying what, I will make this work. When you started that, uh, when you started Waterfield and during these times, did you ever give yourself a get out card did you ever say that I'll try this for two years or three years and if it doesn't work out I'll take up another job or was it all in no all, plan B it was all in no plan B it was all in what are you paranoid about um 
I don't, well, tough, tough question to answer. I guess I'm, I would be paranoid about the fact that um, the dream and the culture that I have for Waterfield somewhere gets eroded um, over time if, if the people, if I've not invested sufficient time to make sure that what we stand for doesn't get carried on as a legacy. Uh, I would worry about that. I'd be paranoid about that. Which is which is a great segue for me to ask, what is it that you're building with Waterfield? What is this legacy? I mean, what do you want it to be? What is your vision now? Uh, vision now, actually, Rohan, to be a global wealth advisory company uh, but our tagline is inside. You, I, with I think you're planning integrity. to. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. You're planning to expand to Dubai as well yes, we next are. year. We are. Uh, Why Dubai, if I may ask? Is it because uh, Indian diaspora? We, we or? found we found that during COVID there was a lot more affinity for our families to settle in Dubai, uh, closer home as well. They and I think also with the very strict lockdown criteria in Singapore at that time. Many families found that they were happy to have one base out of Dubai. So we realized that potentially that could be the first place that we should start if we had an offshore presence. And then, of course, over time, expand to a Singapore and a London as well, because there are large Indian communities in both these locations as well as the U.S. Um, so if I think about what is it we want to be, I feel that We've done all the hard yards right now of establishing what what a very aligned wealth management organization looks like from a client perspective. To be able to take that out to a global audience is what I would like to do. When I think about, you know, larger organizations like a UBS or a JP Morgan, uh, which have built these uh, huge global outfits in wealth management, I ask myself the question is, why can't it be a firm out of India that ultimately can do the same? And that really is the the vision for the company. So at the end of the day, it's very important that we we create a business which is doing it right. So whether it's, it, it has to be right for all the stakeholders. It has to be right for the client because the alignment of interests is there. It has to be right for the client. Uh, it has to be right for the employee because they can sleep well at night because the business model is such that they are thinking about what best they can do for their client. It has to be right also for the investors who are coming in because they know that it's a patient patient business which is getting built out. My aspirations tomorrow is to be like, a, I mean, I admire companies like a Bajaj Finance or a Kotak that's been built because they've built long-term businesses, shareholders that have made money. It's it's So I would like to take that part from the investor bit and the business model that we have is as Waterfield where... Um, you know, the client is happy, employees are happy, investors are happy. It's quite quite an idyllic state, I will say that. But that is really my intention. And can it be global? Hi, it's me again, Rohan. Thank you for listening to First Principles. I just want to take a few seconds of your time to make a quick request. A lot of you write to us saying you love First Principles. You listen to it during your commute, over the weekend, during runs, or even while doing chores. 
Many of you have even sent us questions for our guests. We really appreciate it. It helps us learn and shape first principles into a bigger, better podcast. Could I also ask you to take a few minutes to rate us on your favorite podcast platform? That also really helps us. And if you review us, even better. Thanks for your time. Now, back to the episode. In your space, what does it take? What's a truly defensible and lasting moat in the wealth management space? If your ambition is to be around 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, mm. what would it be? Is it, I mean, surely it can't be scaled today because, I mean, you mentioned JP Morgan, etc. and all that. Those are institutions that were built over hundreds of years, etc. right? And any of this thing. So what is a defensible and sustainable moat as you expand from India to Dubai, to Singapore, to London, etc.? Is it relationships? Is it investment models? Is it what dif what differentiates Waterfield Advisors from others? It will be what we first started out with, which is uh, not really manufacturing our own products and basically being an advisor. But at the aren't end of there the day. other companies as well like Strangely, that? Strangely, no. In When we look at overseas markets, they don't exist as advisors alone. Everyone has either advisory or distribution uh, advisory and distribution, they're not advisors alone because they will always have one arm which is also doing distribution. Because the money is in, in, in distribution. distribution. So the ability to just take the model as we have it and to say that this is who we are and make that statement uh, in a global environment as well is the same as what we did in India. So the so for me, and I've spoken to many bankers who've joined us from overseas markets, and they keep saying, well, we don't have this in Singapore, and we don't have this in Dubai, we still have distribution models there. So it's almost like taking this there and saying, this is who we are, and just staying with what we've done for the last 12 years. When you get this feedback from people that this does not exist in these other markets and I mean from what you're saying it doesn't exist I mean one way to look at that is well, well that's great you know we can be that the other way to look at it is that what are we giving up right yeah. and I'm sure yeah. you're constantly trying to juggle hey look if we had a distribution business of our own yeah. we could be x times bigger than what we are today and you're consciously saying no to that because you said yeah. you don't want to have your legs in both the boats, right? Advisory right. and distribution. Yeah. So you're giving up growth and scale in the short to medium term. Yes. That can't be easy, right? Because growth is always something founders are wired towards. So when you're steering yourself away from growth, yeah. how do you convince yourself? So I, I think uh, maybe good to just go back to the earlier point is that when we were looking at Dubai and Singapore, we're talking about Asia, right? So when the bankers are talking to me, that the bankers from Asia, where it is primarily a distribution-led business. But when you look at the same model overseas, if you look at the US and you look at the UK and Europe, they're mostly on advisory. So 60% is typically an advisory business as compared to India's and maybe Asia's 15 to 20%. So what, where I'm coming from is that, yes, I am giving up 
something today in terms of maybe revenue, right? Because the margins are very different on distribution vis-a-vis advisory. But what I am doing is that I've created what we call annuity revenue streams. Because ultimately, when you get fees from your clients, it's recurring year and after year. And if you continue to hold on to them, you they are long term. They are long term and they're with you. So what is driving Waterfield is to say, I've seen what developed markets look like, which is 60% advisory. I've seen where India and Asia is. And I know that it's a it's a question of education. And if it's a question of education and you know that, for instance, if I tell you that, Rohin, this is better for you, it's going to be more cost efficient, you're going to get better products and you're going to have a better outcome, why will you actually say no? right it's it's it, it would be it would be quite warped for you to think otherwise so for us it's the ability to get to those people get to those clients to be able to say that the advisory model is a better one for you and it's more holistic in nature and therefore become a client of waterfield so i look at it in the context of the pool is moving towards more advisory, which will happen over time. Because you've seen it in developed markets. It's going to come to Asia as well. It's just in Asia, we never propagated it that much. Um, And the other is that, yes, consciously giving up today um, certain parts of growth in terms of revenue growth, because I believe that it's a more sticky business going forward. You talked about you know, the rise of advisory business, but isn't it also a trend that passive exchange-traded funds are also growing in size, especially in the largest in Western markets? And there's been a significant amount of reverse movement from people who are saying that, look, what's the point of paying an advisor? I'm just going to put into this massive, like, you know, uh, passive ETF which is going to give me returns and I'm and then there is like good so does that not worry you is that trend great, not applicable great question and in fact uh, interestingly at waterfield we've been big supporters of etfs and index because and just some just some statistics 2015 etfs were about 1.5% of our mutual fund uh, aum today it's about 17% in the last seven, eight years, you've seen this massive growth which has happened. But I think here it goes back to our definition of wealth management. Ultimately, wealth management is just not about investments. It is also about your legacy. It is about your wills. It is about your investment vehicles. It is about a bunch of things coming together in order to um, in order to have your financial well-being at heart. Passive investments is one part of it, but tomorrow, if you've lost your job, if you have going through a divorce, if you have a child with special needs, um, who are you going to talk to to pull it all together for you? And I think that's where the role of the advisor comes in. Investments is a fraction. Ultimately, what we say at Waterfield is that, one, you're the custodian of the wealth in your generation. Right. The other is that we don't want you to make too many changes to your investments because every time you make a change, uh, you have to take a decision to make an investment into a new place. 
So the probability of getting it right or wrong is always equal at that point. The more times you are making that decision, the higher law of averages. The law of averages that you will you go you will go wrong. So we want you to do as little as possible, but we want you to think of it in a more holistic manner. So. we will continue for instance we have almost about 30 to 35% of our equity allocations for our clients in passive investments but our clients are working with us not just for those passive investments they're working with us because we're seeing the big picture for them on a number of different things that they're trying to do tomorrow if they want to start looking at overseas allocations they want to be investors overseas they don't know how to navigate that place uh if they want to say that i want to i want to um, let's say create create a family constitution or have a family council how am i going to go about doing that we come in to help them with all these pieces and really bring it together for them so that is our relevance uh, in the longer term still sticking with etfs are etfs now the new kind of floor benchmark therefore that you know an investment advisor or a wealth advisor would get compared to i mean uh given the amount of money that's going to etfs wouldn't it be fair for a client to ask that look i mean if i didn't pay any money and i just put all my money into etfs this is what i can get so does that tend to ever come up so i think uh, uh well not really because if you look at india's index and etf market it's still very nascent um it's much more developed overseas but in in the indian Why context is that so if i may ask uh, is it just awareness it's awareness and just the product itself you don't have enough products at the moment which mutual funds are only now beginning to uh, to have but what happens um with the index is that today uh we find that if you looked at the investment universe uh i'm becoming a little bit more technical here large caps for instance uh we advocate to take the allocation through the index in large caps because these are largely very well researched companies at the end of the day we found that most active managers are not able to get the alpha on over and above the index so for us we think that a good way to take your large cap exposure is really through the index whereas would i say the same of an index in the mid cap and the small cap possibly not because i would think that for those companies you need somebody who look at the research and research that company a bit more try to understand what is the company's um core philosophy what is its business what are its earning potential what markets it's sitting in that a research analyst will do the index may not capture that so you would then say that for that part of your allocation you would actually want to go to a fund manager and therefore the etf may not be the best way to take that allocation so it's in india today it's a function of the fact that even within the etf universe we would prefer to go large caps with etfs and non large caps with really with 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 managers who understand the space really by virtue of the fact that information availability today is less in those spaces and therefore you you could be blind when you're going into uh, index directly and and what about artificial intelligence do you think of ai as a potential threat to because at the end of the day 
I mean, one could reduce like a very simplistic reduction of the business that you're in is that you have this large number of potential avenues to invest money in which have past performance data and then you have pools of capital available to you. It's something that an AI model could do as well. Does that worry you? How do you look at AI? So it's interesting um, that one of the positions that I'm actually thinking of recruiting right now is a data scientist because I do believe that AI can simplify a lot of the work that we do on the listed investment side where there is a lot of publicly available information. The role that AI could play is to match the choice of product with the data that we have on the client in terms of what is the client's risk appetite. Which is proprietary. Which is proprietary. So once you have that and you match it off with what AI can do in the choice of the product, you could actually use AI for the entire allocation if you wanted on the listed side. But this is where now the investment portfolio doesn't just comprise of listed investments. It also comprises of private market investments. And private market investments means that there's a lot of intangibles, qualitative information that you're also looking at in order to determine what is right for the client. Um, I feel that the we have to use AI as a friend. Uh, I see huge potential in it. The fact that we're even looking at a data scientist will tell you that we're thinking about it quite actively. And I do feel that it will simplify. But again, come coming back to what is our role as a wealth manager? Because it is investments is at the end of it just one sliver of what we will do for the client. Um, and somewhere before you get to the AI, you have to, because, you know, when I when I look at, again, just coming back to our investment decision-making frameworks, um, Rohin, we always start with what is the objectives of your wealth. We put the boundary conditions. Then we look at are there certain family values or client values. You will say that I want to invest in something which is not related to, let's say, um, tobacco or not related to alcohol. You will have those conditions put in. Then we will look at creating risk pools and risk capital buckets. Then we will look at asset allocation. Then we will look at product and then the cost of investment. So when you look at the AI piece on products, it's, it's part of that six-step decision-making framework, but it's the fifth step. You have to do one to four before you get to five. So AI can help us with that piece, but um, but I feel that unless we do one to four before we get there, the client, the the outcomes will not be as as optimized as it could be. How do you learn? All oh, right, good question. Um, I think I learn. Um, a lot of it has been just experience, experience based. Because you're meeting um, so many people. Because I'm each just week. meeting so many people. Uh, I do enjoy reading management books. Um, there have been a f two which influenced me greatly. Uh, I think I also read them in my early 30s. So they left a very deep and lasting impression. Um, at that time, one was called Blue Ocean Strategy. Uh, a lot of what I've tried to do at Waterfield has actually been trying to create 
that blue ocean in in an industry where this advisory never existed. The other was execution, uh, which I felt was very important. You can have a set of well-laid plans, but if you can't execute it well, there is no point having the degrees of financial, you know, of, you know, strategy can only take you so far. But if you're not able to execute on that strategy well, then you will fall short. So those two books really did influence uh, early on. Today, my learning is more about experience, is about reading articles that uh, somebody may have sent me, uh, which could be on organizational behavior, it could be on leadership. These are the things that would... And how do you store or like, you know, are you a memory person or are you a notes person? Uh, I am, I would say both. Uh, Memory to a large extent, it kind of, if something is interesting, I've just kind of stored it away in my mind. Notes, if they're particularly interesting reports, I do store that for a future read. Um, And I keep going. So I use uh, this app called Notability, which I find very useful to be able to um, kind of send reports into Notability. I make my own comments on those reports and then store that for, you know, I can go back to it three years ago or four years ago and then uh, relate back to it. But uh, I have another question from a subscriber. And I think it's a really interesting question because um, he says that, look, there's no point asking uh, what's going to change over the next 10 years because there are so many things that are unknown. There's so many events that we can't even think about. Instead, are there things that you believe in will not change for the next 10 years that you think are going to still be true 10 years from now? Um, so here in the context of our industry, um, wealth is growing. Wealth in India is growing at a phenomenal pace. Um, and that's not going to change uh, because we're seeing the financialization of assets. So for our business, the industry will... What does that mean when the financialization of assets? So by that, I mean that traditionally in the past, most people will be the money that they earn extra. They may be putting it into real estate or they may be putting it into gold or physical assets. Um, Whereas today, most of the time, you see people not wanting to invest that money into physical assets, but they're putting it into capital markets, for instance, or the phenomenal growth that we've seen in capital market, uh, in the capital markets is because people have found that that's a good place to invest where they can actually have liquidity when they needed it. That trend is expected to continue continue to grow. Today, we're about, I think, financialization of assets is about 1.2 trillion. Um, In the next four years, that's going to become about 3.8 trillion. So when you think of that kind of money, which is going to come into capital markets, it means that you will need someone to professionally manage that wealth. So if I looked at this phenomena itself, it means It's a rising tide. It's a rising tide over the next 10 years. And India is at that cusp where it's financialization of assets. I think the second thing that actually works, which will perhaps also not change, 
is just uh, our uh, demographics. The fact that you have, um, if I if I if I remember my statistics correctly, we will be peaking in terms of the working population by around 2030, which means that almost about 69% of our population will be in that age group of 15 to 64. Um, they're all going to have wealth management needs. So that, again, as a market is going to exist because we just we have the demography growing to that 69%. Today, we must be around 53% or something like that. So that, again, is not going to change. So these two trends for me, I think, means that we will be in demand uh, when I when I look at 10 years out. I think what will be interesting is how does digitization and technology come into all this and how do we use technology well to either access people who are today sitting in tier four, tier five, tier six cities because their aspiration will also be increasing. Um, so these three together, I think, are a wonderful set of, you know, uh, a confluence virtuous cycle. virtuous cycle, which is coming together at this stage because not everybody will realize that they want to just do it themselves. Because again, I come back to what is the role of the advisor? It is to prevent the accidents, uh, which is which is really important because you can lose money also when you invest. Towards the end, I'd like to switch to a few more personal questions. How are you different as a person versus as a professional? outside of work, on weekends and at home, when you're not the founder, when you're not the professional? Um, when I'm not the professional, I I am still very much an introvert. I still am not somebody who is, uh, you know, kind of out there every weekend. It's also probably because weekdays are so busy with meeting people, for me, weekends are always quiet time. If you're an introvert, then I assume it's, that all the meetings in the week is essentially drawing some energy out of a you. A lot of energy. And then the weekends are to it's kind of recharge to yourself. To recharge. Uh, weekends are also, uh, you know, time that my husband and I spend together. Uh, we, I mean, we, we love watching movies. Uh, OTT has been like, you know, just a way to just switch off. Uh, what are the genres that the both of you can agree upon? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think we both like uh, any kind of drama series, thrillers, um, anything which is related to kind of spy movies. We we just we just love those because uh, this this immediate takeaways and no long term <laughs> attachment. No, yeah. What about Succession? Since you mentioned, I mean, it's loved like it. perfect for your perfect, perfect. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Totally hooked onto it. Uh, was waiting for the next season to come out. And it was almost, you know, we, we do, I will say, we do see it in real life uh, in our in our business. So it was like something that we were, we were absolutely hooked on to. Uh, music is the other place, which uh, I find a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of my, I, I mean, it just makes me happy. Whatever kind of music that I listen to, it can put me in a very good mood very quickly. So... Anything which is kind of non-work related is really how we spend the weekend. What does me time look like for you? 
me time looks like um is reading um me time is listening to music me time is a morning walk that i do every day uh which is just i mean i don't carry my mobile with me it's the one hour when i just um you know pray as well you said that you practice interior design as a hobby how do you manage to do that um i just love to look at newer trends in design uh perhaps because i am maybe at one level the visual is also very interesting and important to me and aesthetic and yeah exactly uh and uh so just seeing newer design trends um it's completely different from what i would otherwise do and i've often said this if i wasn't a wealth manager i would be an interior designer uh i just think the play of colors texture um you know light all of these things are things that i just just very curious about and like to see what does focus mode look like for you very focused actually in the sense that you shut yourself off physically is it is it room is it music uh no i will i need the quiet i need absolute quiet um i would be sitting on my favorite desk favorite chair um and there are places specifically where i know that i can get into the zone better it can't be anywhere there are just certain places in our home where i know i get into the zone and it has to be quiet um and then i'm laser focused on what i'm doing many people don't know this you said earlier that you come from a middle class family your dad worked uh in a bank job you're also the great granddaughter of former president s R- radhakrishnan yes that's great rohit how has that if at all influenced the kind of person that you are today um it has subtly influenced uh, for a couple of different reasons the first is that um you do know that you come from a family where uh, a, f- a family that stood for education and uh, so education was a very important part of what what growing up was about um and we celebrate teachers day um in his memory every year so that was one influence the other influence was that he had uh, five daughters and a son and um he believed very strongly in women's education and he also believed that when you educated a woman you educated the family when you educated a man you just educated the individual so it was way ahead of his time <laughs> way ahead of his time and my grandmother herself uh was a uh, um had a postgraduate degree in history in her time and did her degrees after she got married so the importance of education was extremely important um also i think the the role of our lives and how can it impact society more and that 
our lives we are born it needs to have some meaning um and i think that was also one of the reasons why i left standard chartered to to be become an entrepreneur is also because i felt that my life had needed to have more meaning and that meaning could be uh, a new business it could mean employment for people it could mean so much more than what i was doing so yes being part of that family uh, did influence the thinking there's another connection as well with you you're married to former rbi governor raguram rajan's younger brother as well has that influenced anything in the way you know i mean you know, there's now maths there's education there's economics your yeah, um, twin, your twin sister yeah, um, it, teaches economics that's correct uh, um it, what's no, the I, confluence of all of this at home just very interesting dining table conversations <laughs> <laughs> for sure uh no i i think we're just a very normal family um uh, but it's about uh, but i think in all cases it's similar thinking more deeply about what are our roles and how we can contribute back to um to our societies to our spheres of influence to our communities i think that's the common thread so between you know the family that i was born in and the family i married into and of course the family that you're creating at waterfield and advisors and the family i'm creating at waterfield as well absolutely absolutely the family thank you so much for your time somit it was a pleasure having you on the show thank you rohan it was a pleasure to be on your first principles show thank you for having me thank you for listening to first principles the weekly leadership podcast from the kens newsroom we also have a weekly companion newsletter also called first principles in it i expand upon many of the themes you hear on the podcast like mental models learning and self reflection but the first principles newsletter goes much further a vibrant and diverse community of readers and listeners from all around the world send in recommendations for books articles music habit and evocative silent sunday photographs in fact last sunday we also published a second playlist featuring a bunch of interesting journey theme songs you should listen to it You can sign up for free at the ken.com/newsletters/first-principles. The link is also in the show notes for your convenience, so no, you don't need to memorize the URL which I just read out. This episode was hosted by me, Rohan Dharma Kumar, and produced by my colleague Anushka Mukherjee. The audio editing is by Rajiv C N, our resident audio engineer. See you next Thursday.